And we're going to be in uh, Isaiah 58 this morning. Isaiah 58. And while you're getting there, we're going to pray that we might receive the Lord's word. Father, we praise you this morning because you are good. And in the midst of mankind's rebellion and sin towards you and one another, you did not abandon us nor forsake us. You did not completely destroy us. Instead, because of your great mercy and your steadfast love and compassion, you've worked a rescue mission to bring about salvation for us, the undeserving. And you're in the midst of your inaugurated kingdom, bringing your truth and justice to bear in this world. We pray that you would unite our minds with your own this morning to understand your mission, to bring justice to the oppressed, and to hear anew the good news of the gospel that you have brought while you have proclaimed liberty to the captives. And in all of this, that you would motivate us, embolden us, and encourage us to join you in that mission. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you pay attention to the constantly changing news cycle, it seems to rotate about every five minutes. It seems as if the world is getting worse every day. But if you silence out the highs and the lows, and you start to see what's right in the middle of all of the stories, there's a constant refrain that you hear, and that is, where is the justice? Many of you watched football yesterday. How many watched football? Raise your hands. I even have to say yes. I watched it for about five minutes while I was in the gym, up on the screen there. And it was hilarious to me because as I was pondering my sermon, I thought, man, even in football games, there is a constant refrain, where is the justice? It usually goes like this, come on, ref, right? Where is the justice, right? No matter what we see in this world, justice is being called for. Whether it be the fact that we as Oregonians are calling for justice with the teenagers that started the fire in the gorge, or pay discrepancies between male and female employees at Google, or holding Equifax responsible for stolen identities, or riots in the middle of St. Louis over a police officer's acquittal. If you watch the news long enough, you will realize that the majority of stories are simply stories about mankind's need for equitable judgment to be passed down. The news is all about justice. You just have to open your eyes to it. And we live in a world full of injustice. Here are some stats for you. Some of you might know them. Globally, 4 billion out of the 7 plus billion people on this planet live outside the protection of the law. In other words, if somebody were to steal from them, burn down their home, rape them, they would not have anyone to call. 4 billion people, the majority of people. Slavery is very much at large. Uh, I'm amazed at how many people think that slavery no longer exists because it doesn't exist in the form that we as a country are primarily associated with. More than 45 million people are held in slavery today, and one in four of those slaves is a child. Human trafficking is massive. Human trafficking generates about $150 billion a year, two-thirds from commercial sexual exploitation. A child goes missing in India every eight minutes, and nearly half are never found. In the time it will take me to do this sermon, four children will go missing in India, and most of them, probably in, in India especially, will be used for sexual exploitation. Sex trafficking, credible and conservative estimates of global sex trafficking ind indicate that there are between 4.2 million and 11.6 million people held in forced commercial sexual exploitation. We live in a world full of injustice. All we have to do is open our eyes to it. Justice is the answer. Now, you might say Jesus is the answer, and I completely agree with you, but let me get your mind in the idea of, or wrapped around the idea of what justice is, because justice is an interesting thing. It is innate, innate within us, think about this for a second, it is innate within us that when we are wronged, or someone we love is wronged, we want justice. Is that true? Get a yes or no, is that true? And yet, the paradox of human justice 
is that when we are the perpetrator of the evil or injustice, we want grace and mercy and compassion. Is that true? Yeah. We have placed God in a tough spot because of this. We are angry with him that he seemingly allows injustice in the world, and yet at the same time, we are also angry that he tells us to live in a certain way that will bring about justice. In other words, we have given him a no-win situation. We don't want him to tell us how to live justly, but we also are angry with him that he won't force other people to live justly. We want his authority as long as we are the higher authority, but the reality is is that for justice to work the way it is supposed to, there must be one being, one entity who is the judge and lawgiver that is impartial. He cannot be taken by bribe or extortion or personal concern. And as we know from the word, that one person is Jesus Christ. That one person is God himself. The cry for justice from the atheist or the most fervent follower of Jesus Christ is one of the firmest, in my opinion, most basic proofs that we are all made in the image of God and we desire to live in a world that we were created for, which is a world of justice, where justice reigns. Thus far as humans, our best attempt to put justice in place is to build laws and enforce them. But the reality is, guys, that laws are not the pinnacle of justice. Laws are simply defining the minimum standard that we will get by with in society that we will tolerate and enforce. And yet, even deeper than this is a desire for justice that doesn't need law, justice that is love. And what the world does is it perverts it, and it takes it up to a place where it says, well, you just define what justice and love is in your life. But see, again, that won't work because that's based on personal self-interest. For justice to reign, all of us have to be submitted to the truth of what justice is and the truth of what love is. And that is why when asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, Jesus replied with this. He didn't give a list of laws. He combined all laws into one, or one set of, of ideas. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, if you don't love God and submit to him, the reality is is you're probably going to interact with one another in a way that is self-interested and selfish. You have to first love God enough to submit to his rule, and then it plays out from there. And Jesus quotes from two separate places here in the Old Testament, one Deuteronomy, one Leviticus, He quotes from the law that was given to the Israelites. And in holding to these laws as a people, Israel was supposed to be practicing this. But instead of seeing this as the pinnacle of God's truth and his justice, they decided to focus in on the laws to make sure that they didn't go past the line, but they would go all the way up to the line. So instead of imaging God's innate righteousness and justice that is contained in this kind of an idea— They started to operate off of laws. And this reflection of God's righteousness and justice that Jesus talks about here was supposed to be what characterizes God's people. They would be those that would show the world the heart of the good creator God, the good lawgiver and the good judge. But problematically within human nature, there is this sticky issue. I don't know if you guys ever feel this way. Sometimes I wish God could just turn off my free will switch. Does anybody ever feel like that? God, if only you could just turn it off so I could follow you better, right? I've had that conversation with him many times because there's this sticky issue that gets in the way of justice called selfishness, personal self-interest. It drives each human to sin against God and against one another for their own interest. And this is sin. And while sin and the word injustice are not one and the same, they have a lot of common overlap. I've talked to you guys about this a ton throughout Isaiah, and to not understand this in Isaiah is to miss the whole point of the book. The idea of justice that Isaiah is talking about, or the word mishpat, say mishpat with me, mishpat in the Hebrew, the idea of justice is that it comes from the idea or the root to judge. It means to pass down judgment. To administer justice at its core is to pass down right judgment. 
It means to justify the righteous, condemn the wicked. In Western Greco-Roman culture, we have very much said, yeah, what this means then is to condemn the wicked. So that's how we think of justice. Think about it. When somebody says justice, for most of you in this room, a lot of you have already converted your idea of justice, but for most of you in this room, the idea of justice is the bad guys will get theirs, right? That's how we view justice in the West. It's bringing the law to bear. But biblically, as we've seen throughout Isaiah, and we will see throughout the minor prophets when we go through them, is that it's deeper than just the bad guys getting theirs. This idea of sedekah v'amishpat. Everybody say, sedekah v'amishpat. And you think, why are you teaching us Hebrew? Because I like how they sound, sedekah v'amishpat, right? And it cements in my head a different idea than just what I think of in English as righteousness and justice. Because these two ideas, as we've seen in Isaiah, are very different. Righteousness is an innate quality of God, okay? That's where it comes from. It comes from his character. He is right, period. So you ever think that God's wrong? You're wrong. He's right, okay? He's righteous, which means he's moral, he's valuable. Everything he does is right and true and good. But there's even more than that. Innately, within the triune God we serve is right relationship. It's unity, And that's why his people are always distinguished by that same thing. Unity and right relationship, equitable relationship. Justice, the word mishpat in the the Hebrew, is seen very much so as action that brings about righteousness. In other words, if right relationship between me and my brother is that we share food in a potluck, if there's injustice, it means I eat all the food and leave him hungry. This was the problem in the city of Corinth that Paul addressed. He said, all you rich people, you come and bring all your food to the potlucks, right, to the the love feasts, and then you eat it all, and all the poor people are hungry. Is that how God's people are supposed to live, he says? And this was the problem. It wasn't a love feast because they weren't practicing justice. They weren't bringing about right relationship. Because right relationship is those that have much give to those that have little, so there's an equity restored. That's how the God of the Bible works. Now, we as Americans, let's just get the big, you know, ugly beast out in the middle of the room. We are taught that this is called communism. I worked for my keep, so I get to keep it. No, guys, the American dream is not Christian. It's good to work hard, and it's good to gain from that, but then we are called upon, if we are the ones that are wealthy, to give to those that are not. That is what Christians do. And so we work hard to be blessed, and then we give that away. Because that's what Christ did for us. To feed the hungry and help the helpless. To be a father to the fatherless. This is what God desires his people to be, to bring about this kind of biblical justice. Not to get the bad guys in the end. That will happen, and we don't need to worry about that. But that's not our job. In the midst of Isaiah, the core rebuke of the people of Judah was that justice was not being administered. This kind of justice. The people were acting religious, but this was basically to cover their own selfishness and do whatever they wanted in their daily lifestyle. And this is why in the beginning of Isaiah and throughout the book, you see these statements. Let's take a look at one here we're very familiar with. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. He says to them, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause right? This is what his people were supposed to be doing. He's saying, guys, you're not doing it, so you got a course correct. And the last two weeks, we've seen these same ideas in chapters 57 and 59. Here's one that we looked at last week, Isaiah 59, 14 and 15. He's rebuking Judah, and he says, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And we looked at this last week and saw that that displeased is kind of a, a bad word to use there because it's really that it was evil in the eyes of God. It's much more serious than just it displeased him. You see, God's people were to be about his work, bringing his reflection to the world. I went to Africa and heard this story about a well-meaning pastor who showed up there, and he started teaching on the fishes and loaves. And the pastors sitting before him, most of them hadn't eaten in two or three days because they'd been 
hitchhiking in order to get there. And he starts going in and talking about how Jesus supplies the fishes and the loaves. And he was talking metaphorically, being an American, right? But what do you think that those starving Africans were thinking about? They weren't thinking metaphorically. And my good friend Marcel, that all of you know, he leaned over very kindly to the pastor and he said, brother, unless you have loaves and fishes to feed all these people, you better shut up. And if you know Marcel, you know how heavy that is from Marcel to say shut up. And the pastor went, oh no, and he didn't realize that he couldn't deliver the gospel of heavenly food unless he was giving them the gospel of earthly food. Really hard to hear the gospel on an empty stomach of three days of hunger. Well, it's the same thing. We go in and we tell all these children who are orphans, God is a father to you. Peace out. Really hard to give them the gospel of a good father. God calls us to do these things to bring the gospel, to bring about wholeness in their lives. This is another Hebrew word that many of you are familiar with, the word shalom. Say shalom. Shalom to you as well. It's a good word. It's like aloha. It's, it's hello, goodbye. It's peace. But it also means wholeness through righteousness and justice. It means peace in our language, but it's not the absence of war. It means completion and fulfillment, bringing about something that makes a broken person whole, bringing about unity in the midst of division, restoring and fulfilling relationships. And so God's people are to be that people that live lives where they are not identified only by their religious action, but also and primarily by living out their religion in action that brings about justice to correct oppression. And guys, again, as you heard me say last year when I did this, I had to confess to you, and I will again, that for years I was a Christian and I thought, read your Bible, pray, go to church. But guys, I fit right in with the people of Judah for 10 plus years. I watched oppression and thought, well, if they'd only work harder, well, too bad they're not born American, and all the other excuses that I'd come up with in my head so that I wasn't called to act. But Jesus rebuked those people. And so I desire for us as a church the blessing of acting and seeing what God does. And so this is the idea that I want you to get as we step into Isaiah 58. Look at Isaiah 58, verse 1 with me. And what we're going to see here first is this idea. True religion includes the work of bringing about shalom through justice. thought I'd only throw one Hebrew word at you in that line. True religion includes the work of bringing about shalom or wholeness through justice. That's what we're going to see in the first five verses here. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness, Sedekah, and did not forsake the mishpat, the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. There's the Sedekah of the mishpat again. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God is rebuking them and he's saying to them, guys, you think you seek me daily. You think you delight in me. But the reality is, is that you're not practicing true religion. This is not just an Old Testament idea, but one that is echoed in the New Testament. Many of you are familiar with the book of James. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the same idea of bringing about shalom and justice towards those that are in the midst of injustice. But before we can even go there, we must grasp and understand justice as it is applied to ourselves. I think so many people get burned out in living lives that are acting out justice because they haven't taken the idea of justice in the midst of the gospel and applied it to themselves. You see, that's where we get the power to act from. Let's think about justice in the Western sense of the bad guys get theirs in the end and apply that version to ourselves. It would first look something like this. A just and impartial judge plus my activity of sin and injustice equals the consequence of death. That is justice, right? That's what I deserve. I deserve death. You deserve death. 
But praise God that the idea of justice doesn't just end there for God. This is absolutely true, and the Bible says so. It says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Raise your hand if what you deserve is death. Every single one of us deserves the consequence of death. And so if justice were carried out in my life in the Western fashion of the bad guys getting theirs, I would die for eternity. I would get the consequence of living a life of self-interest and selfishness, and I would be separated from God and from man because that is what I deserve, and that is what I have shown throughout my life that I desire. And so in the Old Testament, the way that you would declare that you knew this truth is you would take your animal, your prize animal, and you would slit their throats and drain their blood out and fry them on the BBQ, right, on the altar. And you'd say, Lord, I know that this is what I deserve. It was the way that sin was atoned for because sin requires death. But in the midst of all this grossness and bad news, the good news of the Bible is that God, as the culmination of his mission to bring shalom to his creation, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reflect the wholeness of his kingdom in his ministry and through his character. He executed mishpat for three years on this earth, healing the hurting, freeing the oppressed, bringing sight to the blind, trying to bring about tzedakah. You see, justice brings about right relationship. It restores it. And this is why Jesus was the one spoken of in Isaiah 9 as the prince of what? Peace. And peace in Hebrew is shalom. Jesus is the prince of shalom that ushers in a reign of shalom in his people. And after three years of ministry, showing that justice, bringing about righteousness, he did the ultimate act to bring about right relationship with God and man, and he was crucified on the cross as an ultimate sacrifice for my sin and yours. In the crucifixion, God himself took on the penalty of our sin so that justice, even the Western version of justice, could be accomplished sin was dealt with. But instead of the guilty guy, me, getting death, it was the innocent guy, Jesus himself, and yet it was death for sin. And in the midst of that act, the thing we have to wrap our mind around is that he accomplished a work of mishpat that brought about tzedakah. He did justice that corrected brokenness to bring about right relationship. Justice that brings about right relationship. And in so doing, we are now free and forgiven from our sin. Every single one of you who have confessed that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that Jesus is that atoning sacrifice, you are forgiven for all eternity. He is your friend and your Savior, and he has made you clean and new. Think about that. In spite of your sin and guilty verdict, Jesus has made you clean and new. He's forgiven us for all of our sin. And his resurrection from the grave three days later proved this victory. And it proved to you that he loves you so much that not even death or sin can hold you. And he ascended into heaven and took his rightful place as inaugurated king, waiting to return to judge the living and the dead so that he might execute justice in the end of days. And he is that one who is the prince of peace and the impartial judge. And so Isaiah 11 describes when he will come and complete that work as this. In his delight shall, uh, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He, Jesus, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now you read this and you go, wait a minute, striking the earth with a rod, this sounds like a pretty angry guy, but look at what he's doing, guys. He's bringing about judgment for the poor. We think judgment for the poor. Throw him in jail! That's not the judgment he's talking about. He's talking about executing justice to bring them into right relationship, to restore what was not in their lives and the brokenness that was there. And so for the person that wants justice restored on this earth, each of us must first understand the justice that Christ has showed us. 
justice that worked to restore right relationship with him. And we must accept this free gift of grace. If you do not accept that free gift of grace, then he is a gentleman and he will allow you to fulfill the consequence and justice on your own, which will mean an eternity away from him and an eternity away from his people. So I beg of you this morning, if you've not accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, do so today. Right where you sit, confess your sin to him and say, I am a broken sinner in need of a Savior and I need you. And I thank you for the justice that you did on my behalf. That you fulfilled the consequence of death and yet you didn't hold me accountable but brought me into yourself to be innocent and justified. If we don't acknowledge our sin and our need for his salvation, then we are acting in sheer hypocrisy when we say we want to take justice to the world because we don't understand the justice that he is bringing to the world. We're doing it out of our own power and we will burn out. So often I think that we, instead of being God's people, are much like the people of Judah. We sit back from righteousness and justice and we get concerned about whether or not, did you know the rapture is going to happen on the 23rd? Did you hear this? Some new, some new guy came out and said that the rapture is going to happen on the 23rd. And I loved the, the story, by the way. It said, uh, no Catholic, Protestant, or Eastern Orthodox Christian theologian agrees with this man. So no Christians agree with this man, basically, right? But a lot of us, we sit and we worry so much about when the rapture is going to happen and when we get out of here and what we do. And you know, No, guys, be about his business and see what he's doing. He's brought about justice through the cross, and we take that same justice to the world. And this is how we get motivated. Because to bring the gospel of Jesus' sacrificial love to the world around us, we must first understand it for ourselves and then take it to the rest of the world. But again, guys, you can't bring the gospel of good news to people if you don't execute justice on their behalf. It's very hard to do, just like I talked about in Africa. What the people of Judah had done instead was live this religious life, try and hold God accountable for his activity, but not hold themselves accountable. And they had left behind the mandate to act as God's people in the midst of an unjust world. Look at verse 3 again there with me. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure, he says to them, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, Judah, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. So they were doing the religious works, but they weren't actually following the Lord. And so he asks them rhetorically, almost sarcastically, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? I was listening to a pastor teach this recently, and he mistook this as God giving a command here. This is God being sarcastic and going, guys, you can spread out the sackcloth and the ashes and look sad and cry and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter to me. It's nothing to me because you're not actually following me. They were doing all the religious duties, but they were missing the point. God doesn't want our false humility. He doesn't want our false religion. He wants us to be in relationship with him and understand his character. Understand that what he has done out of sheer love for us, we respond to that love by doing it for others. And this is my next point, and really my only other big point, is that obedience comes out of a grateful heart for God's act of justice on our behalf. Because when we understand what he did for us, when we understand his justice that he merited out, that it was undeserved, unearned favor in spite of us. We then do that for everyone else that's around us. At the heart of almost every religion outside biblical Christianity, and especially found in the religions around Judah at the time of this writing, people did religious actions to try and force God or put pressure on God to perform for them. In other words, if I pray more, God should act. Or if God's not hearing my prayers, i got to fast on top of that, and then maybe he'll act. Instead, at the heart of followers of Yahweh, it's not getting God to respond to us, it's us responding to God. Think about that for a second. How much of your life in prayer and just meditation with the Lord is you trying to get God to do something for you, when in reality, what we're called to do is simply respond to him. 
And that's why most of the prayers in the midst of the Bible are praise and thanksgiving. There is petition, but praise and thanksgiving and lament sadness for the injustice of the world. These are the majority of prayers in the Bible. And if we understand that response, it will empower us to step into what life, uh, the life that God wants us to lead. Skip ahead with me to verse 13. We're going to come back to the middle section here. And look at verse 13 in Isaiah 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. To those that truly understood the goodness and grace of God, they would understand that giving one day in seven to the Lord and honoring him, setting the priority of their timetable and their life and their schedule towards him was a delight because it's a response to his love. Man, for those of us who think that coming on Sunday or doing, doing things that the Lord asks of us are not a delight, they're a burden, you got to stop. I would ask you, stop coming to Sundays. Stop doing religious works and simply sit at home and meditate on the Word of God and understand His gospel. If acting for Jesus is a burden, you got to go back to the cross and you got to go back to the gospel because that's what empowers us. We delight in Him because of what He's done for us and so we no longer seek our own pleasure, we seek His. That is what our life is about. It creates a gratefulness in us when we understand his good gospel. And the heart of true religion works out of this delight in him. Because we delight in God and his sacrifice to bring about graciousness and mercy and justice, rather than to inflict upon us what we deserve, the punishment we deserve, then we will start to act as he did, and it will prove true what he said to us. Just as the Father sent me, he said, I send you to go do the same things in the world. As one commentary on this section of Scripture in Isaiah 58 puts it, he says it is impossible to be truly religious and socially indifferent. One of the unique features of biblical faith is that there is no genuine relation with God that is not at the same time a genuine relationship with the brother. How we love God is shown in how we love people. And so that's why back in verse 6, God calls his people to act in a religious way that speaks of their love for him, their delight in him. Look at verse 6. This is his command. Is not this the fast or the religious work that I choose, he says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. He's saying that for the oppressed and the enslaved, true religion is to bring freedom. For the hungry, true religion is to feed them. For the fatherless, to love them and parent them. For the hurting and crippled, to bring them whatever healing we can. And above all, to no longer hide from these issues as if they weren't important to God. We must recognize that every human being that does not have freedom, that does not have love, it's evil in the sight of God. I love Abraham Lincoln's quote. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves, and under a just God cannot long retain it. How true that is. Out of thankfulness and gratitude to God for his mercy in the midst of justice, we give ourselves for that same work, to give people a glimpse of the justice of a good God, that they might have their hearts open to the gospel message that justice has been served on their behalf, and they have been rendered forgiven and justified because of it. And when we do this, when we act together with God in his mission, we will see God working in ways that we cannot believe. I, just like you, want to see the miracles of God happen, and we wait for it to happen in these, these mystical ways but the reality is, is God has given us a blueprint for how to see his, his work and to see his love and to see his action. Look with me at verse 8. If we act in this true religion of God to bring about justice, he says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, 
and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking with wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. In other words, you'll bring refreshment to whoever is around you. And, he says, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. God's mission of shalom is to restore his creation, which has been broken down by sin and death, and to raise up generations that follow him in peace. He has done his work of an atoning sacrifice for our sins and giving us of his Holy Spirit. And now he calls us to partner with him in his work. If we do that, I can give you no commentary on this section. It says it perfectly. If we do that, he will give us the name and the identity of those that repair the breach and that restore the streets that have been unjust that no one dwells in. And we will bring life to the lifeless and help to the hurting because of Jesus Christ. And so, what are the practical steps of practicing true religion? This morning, each one of us have the ability to practice true religion. For those of you that have never accepted Christ's gift of forgiveness because of his death in your place, the first thing for you to do to practice true religion is to confess that you deserve a just sentence of death but that Christ died in your place so that your death sentence would be satisfied. So right now, right where you are at, you don't need to do anything special. You simply need to speak to God. And you need to say in the depths of your being, in the depths of your heart, Lord, I am a sinner, forgive me. I want to be justified by you. And in that moment, he will enter your life and begin a relationship with you and you will be justified. And from then on, you walk in the growing sanctification of being a Christian, the growing work of being saved. And one day in the future, it will all culminate and you will be with him for eternity. But right where you're at right now, if you confess, he will judge you as innocent, having taken your sin on the cross. For many of you, that is the first step of true religion. I'll be in the back during worship time, and if you want to come talk to me about that more or you want me to lead you in prayer, I'm happy to do that. Secondly, though, to practice true religion, there are many of you here today that are already serving the Lord in true religion. Whether it be supporting your compassion children or African New Life Ministries or IJM, as we'll talk about in a second, or Mission Aviation Fellowship or acting in some capacity within our local community, to bring about justice, I want to remind you of who you are this morning. You are the worker of the Most High God, bringing about restoration to the breach, bringing about an empowerment to people who have no power, bringing about freedom to the oppressed, and you are, in the name of Jesus Christ, restoring what is broken. And so this morning, know that you are not alone. And be reminded that you can delight in Christ even in those darkest moments. When you feel as though you can bring no more justice to the world, remember the gospel and let his light shine upon you. For those of you today who recognize that they hear the same call as those in Judah, for many of you in this room, you listen to how he was rebuking Judah and you think to yourself, that's me. I read my Bible, I pray, I call myself a Christian, but there is no effort on my part to bring about justice in the world. I want to encourage you to join in the work of God globally and locally. And to help you do that, we are going to speak uh, with some of the folks in our own body here in a second about the steps that they have taken to bring on true religion in the midst of their own lives locally. But globally, I also want to introduce you to International Justice Missions, a group that we support and partner with. I'll give you more information here in a moment about IJM. 
That's a really hard uh, movie to watch. Um, it's kind of hard to see. All those videos, you can go on iJam's website and see many more like that. They're doing amazing work, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but right now, I'm really honored to be on stage with four wonderful women from our own body who, let's see if I can get this here. Here we go, wet. I was going to share those. Uh, who are doing the work of justice in a different way. They're not working for IJM, but they're doing just as important justice work. Um, we've got four moms up here who are foster moms, and um, it is one of the things that is near and dear to the heart of this church, and so I thought it would be really cool to talk to them about how they kind of stepped into the work of justice in their own life. And so, um, Anne, I'm going to start with you, and we're just going to ask some questions along the line here. How did the Lord use your life experiences uh, to guide you into an area of kingdom work that you were passionate about, like foster care? <clears throat> Well, um, I was raised in a home that was very much a non-Christian home um, and had absent parents, uh, and it kind of manifested in brokenness that uh, ended up a, act, a teen mom myself at 17 um, with twins, and, um, you know, just a lack, a lack of ability to cope with life and its challenges. Um, you know, it further continued with hard things. One of those twins was medically very ill, and, um, you know, just on and on the broken cycle went, and I found myself in my early 20s um, struggling with substance abuse as an ability to, to try to cling to something. Um, <clears throat> however, during all of this time, I was always very aware of the brokenness in myself, um, but felt stuck and uh, really was grateful the day that I you know, entered into a relationship with God, uh, feeling like I'd, you know, in the, missed the boat in a sense, you know, chosen far too many times not to follow the path that I was somehow, um, you know, supernaturally or whatever, um, aware of. Um, I was very aware that I was in rebellion and, um, was offered another opportunity to cling to God and, um, chose to, and that was an initial choice, but it was something I, had to do every day and still do and um, really couldn't understand how where I was at would make any sense or why God would want me and um, so <clears throat> many years later excuse me <clears throat> that has grown into um, opportunities to serve in the foster community with other teen moms or um, you know even uh, folks that just have dysfunctional family or untreated untreated mental illness um, I've had a lot of people that I've directly been, you know, it, you know, loved in my life um, that I've seen affected um, as children that had they maybe been advocated for, um, perhaps things could have been different or, you know, to me it makes sense why they end up adults that struggle, uh, you know, with substance abuse or, you know, just other broken behaviors, you know, or inability to be present with their children and parent as they should. Um, <clears throat> and so for me, there's a lot of compassion um, towards, you know, everyone involved in the system. You know, there's the children knowing that they need an advocate and they need someone to love them. Um, also, the parents that come in, they're often broken. They've often been part of generations of dysfunction and godlessness. And, um, you know, they need someone to come alongside of them and help them, you know, get up and... Um, teach them skills, show them practical things about how to cope with life when it's difficult. Um, you know, it's been really great to even use something like, you know, when I was much younger, I felt like, God, there's so many things that are hard in my life, you know, on top of everything else. I've got this child with illness and whatnot, and, you know, I've even had opportunities to use those things with foster children that we've had, you know, with feeding issues or, you know, failure to thrive, um, developmental delays and such, and so it's been amazing to see how God has used so many hard things in my life that didn't really seem to make sense um, to, you know, further serve, and um, to me, it's really exciting, and you know, so obviously I have an, you know, an invested interest in that. I've been that mom. I also have been the person terrified for their children, and I want to provide that safe home for those children. Um, you know, also, um, you know, I just, I have an opportunity to mentor other moms and show that there's hope, mm -hmm. and that to me is very exciting, and I feel um, 
it's a valuable experience that I don't want to squander. And I'm grateful. And so that is how I stay passionate. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. That took a lot of courage. Thank you very much. So it's hard to tell our story, but the the cool thing is, is that when we look at what uh, Satan intended for evil, the Lord takes and turns for good. And I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians where he says that we can comfort others from what we've been through. And, and so taking that story and really letting that be your driver for where the Lord is directing you to do justice work is really cool. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, Jessica, I'm going to actually ask you next. It's a big step to have the entire family step forward in kingdom work together. So how have you and Dave kind of gone about and the kids all uh, gone about working as a family with all the other stuff you got going on and then also doing some kingdom work? Um, is this on? I don't think it's on. Yeah, okay. bumper okay. up there, B. You can hear me. Okay. Um, I think when I hear that, it makes me think that David and I have done something. <laughs> and I don't know that we have really actually done anything. I feel like maybe we've modeled love and compassion for our kids. I hope that we've modeled taking our faith and putting it into action. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as foster care, I feel like the Lord put it upon our family. Mm-hmm. And the Lord did it, not us. We could have come up with and have at times a million reasons why it wasn't the right thing for us. Or we had so many things. We have four boys, and then we bring others into that. And I see the moms with their Starbucks sitting at the game, enjoying it, and actually seeing what's happening in the full game. (laughs) And I don't always get that. And there's a jealousy with that sometimes of, Mm -hmm. like, I could choose that. But the Lord has put this upon our family. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we first started thinking about it, David and I came up with a lot of reasons not to. But when we asked our older boys especially what their thoughts were they were immediately on board Mm -hmm. like we didn't have to convince a single one of our kids that this was a good thing for our family to do Mm -hmm. um they were ready to pull the trigger before we were and with every child that's come into our house they have loved them as though they're a brother or sister whether that was for a couple days of emergency shelter care over a weekend or if it was a year and a half they have taken that on and we've never had to do anything to make Mm -hmm. them um take that on so i don't feel like we've done anything it's definitely been the lord on our family um it's been hard i've seen my kids mourn and sob Mm. when kids have left our home more than any i've ever seen them cry yeah it is a deep hurt, and we've questioned if this is an okay thing to do to our kids mm. because it hurts, and it hurts me as an adult, but I can kind of put it in its place. You know what I mean? I can, yeah. I can understand what we're doing, but to see my kids not being able to control tears yeah. is hard, and yet the next day they wake up saying, when's our next call coming? Yeah, and that's kind of the deal with all of your kids, right? It is, yeah. It's amazing to me in watching you from the outside. Your families, the kids, are so on board right away. Mm-hmm. And we as adults come up with reasons not to do things that are in the Lord's heart. But our mm-hmm. kids are like, let's do mm-hmm. it. You know, and that to me is a good sign. That's a good sign that we as adults sometimes need to listen to the truth that's coming from our kids oh, yeah. to step out in that faith. Yeah, when yeah. our one and or we'd had one for almost a year and a half, and he left us this spring, and or I guess late winter last year, and... It was hard. I mean, he'd been part of our life for such a long time, and we had decided we needed a little break. We had a few Mm -hmm. things coming up. We needed to just kind of breathe and grieve, and my 11-year-old told me I was being selfish (laughs) and that there could be kids waiting in the DHS office right now, and we just wanted to rest, Mm. and what were we doing? And Mm. so, you know, they have taken it on as much as us, and they help so much. There's no way we could do what we do yeah. if they weren't on board. And I love, I love what you're saying about it's just kind of who we are and what we do because the Lord's placed it on our life. So often, I know in my own life and I talk to other Christians, it's taking on a project. Yeah. But true justice work is not a project. It's no. a life lived. Yeah. And, and I, that's what I hear from you and I know that's, that's the same thing with all of you. Yeah. yeah. Malia, you have told me before that Isaiah 58 is uh, a verse that the Lord is, or a section of text that the Lord's given you, a word from the Lord to kind of step out in faith. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so it's, it is Isaiah 58, the whole book of James, uh, faith without works is dead, and Matthew 25 is mm-hmm. the three big ones for us. Um, but Isaiah 58, I actually want to share 
the aftermath, yeah. if that makes sense. It will in a second. So we became foster parents. Um, October will be six years for us, and it is our family ministry. It's all of us. And um, so our first placement, we were certified on the 27th, and on the 28th we got a call for nine-month-old twins. And I was so excited, but I told them I have to call and ask Shane because we were going to do one, and, you know. So um, we <laughs> – I can't look at him or I'm going to cry. So um, – he said, are we even certified for two? And I was like, I don't know, but they're offering, so let's do it. So uh, they came two days later at 11 o'clock at night on October 30th, and um, they were in our home for 16 months. Uh, there was not a lot of parent involvement. Every case is different. Um, we've had a newborn that we have five visits a week, and it very much is a reminder that you're raising someone else's child. Mm-hmm. Um, but these two, mom never even came back to the state of Oregon for nine months. Um, she came back in the 10th month, gave birth to a baby, and long story short, that baby was taken into care. So they called us to see if we would take the newborn. Um, so yes, we did. So all of a sudden, we have six kids, three of them under two. Just let that sink in, everybody. That's crazy. So, and twins. Um, but it was amazing, and we loved them, and the, everybody has told us, I'm sure they told you, there's just something about your first placement. It's, it's the first, it's just the newness, the first love, the first goodbye, um, the first everything, and so their plan went to adoption, and I remember standing in the kitchen, and I'm just watching them, the twins, holding the baby, and I'm just like, Lord, I don't know how I can do this. I mean, how am I supposed to say goodbye? We had first Thanksgiving, first Christmas, first birthday, second Thanksgiving, second Christmas, second birthday, first steps, first words. Like, these are my kids. And I remember the Holy Spirit saying, I need you on the other side of adoption now. And if you don't know, we have an adopted daughter. And in that moment, it was so the Lord, because I had this picture in my head of, one of the caregivers at Hope's um, orphanage. And she's holding Hope, and she's her hand on her head. And I always thought that, like, we had this miracle of attachment with Hope. Like, the Holy Spirit just, I mean, she woke up the first day with us, a with him, and, it, and she's never gone back. Um, in that moment, I realized the miracle was not her attachment to us. It was that someone loved her enough for her to be able to attach And that was the miracle, that some woman that I will never know and never meet, and I don't know her name, gave my daughter the ability to attach to me. And the Lord was asking that of us. And so you imagine the peace that filled my heart, even in the midst of the saddest goodbye um, that I had ever faced. There was this little glimpse of this is what I have for you. And also, go read Isaiah 58. So Isaiah 58 has always been the call. Hans went over it. It says, you know, this is not, is this not what I have chosen? To share your bread with the hungry, that you bring to the house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him. To not hide yourself. If you take away the yoke, extend your soul. Like it was the call. This time, I read Isaiah 58 with a broken heart because I had answered this call. And listen to what I had not even registered before says, when you do this, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You shall call the Lord and he will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Again, when you do this, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and the darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. And strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like the spring of water whose spring of water whose waters do not fail. I mean, can you even imagine? Like he's saying, You did this and this is what I'm going to do. Your soul is in drought, but I am here. I am your peace. I am your righteousness. I will go before you. When you call, here I am. It was amazing. It was this amazing moment of seeing beforehand he knew and he doesn't say I find it interesting that this is going to cost you 
This call is going to cost you. There will be days where you go, I don't even know if I can do this anymore. Like the weight of what you're asking me to do is so heavy. That's not in there. He just says, this is the call and this is who I am. And this is what I'm going to do when you obey. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing, and I just have to say, we're scratching the surface here. Mm-hmm. Like goodbye is like this much of the heartache. Like there is poop smearing, you guys. There's PTSD, there's ADHD, there are extreme behaviors, there are missing sports games, there are, I mean, there's so much. The cost is so great, and yet he is worth it, and they are worth it, and it's not easy, but it's, it's what we're called to, and it is. It's our life now. I mean, this is our life. We have a brand new baby right now because I couldn't wait till the end of September <laughs> because it's... It's the call. And I love what, what you said there um, uh, that about hope, that hope could understand love because someone else had loved. You know, when we go give the gospel in foreign nations and, and just around our local community and we say to someone, put your trust in Jesus, but they've been bro- uh, raised in a broken home with a terrible family system with father figures they can't trust who actually abuse them, to just give them the words means nothing. And the Lord does work through his word, and it won't return void, but how much better would it be for us to deliver that with a relationship that teaches them what trust is like? And, and that's what you guys are doing. You are allowing these children to grow up in a home so that they can eventually hear the gospel and know that they can trust this parental figure in the sky because they were cared for. Yeah. All right, Whit, I'm going to ask you. You guys are doing a great job, by the way, of uh, staying in time, something I am not good at. Um, <laughs> Whitney, and good job keeping it together there, by the way. That was good, yeah. yeah. Uh, Whitney, for you, um, one of the balancing acts that you and Dallas and your family play is that you guys are in the midst of uh, deacon and deaconess assessment. You're part of the leadership of this church, which loads a ton more on top of you. And so, um, you know, a lot of folks, it's hard to balance inside and outside the, the church body. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about, you know, you guys do community group and uh, pastoral care and bringing kiddos into your home to care for them. So how have you and your family found that balance between inside and outside the church? Okay, I had to take notes because I go blank. So I think my answers are going to be much more practical as far as the things that we do, way mm-hmm. less of my emotion. But um, for us, mission is a call and foster care is a call, and they're not a separate call. So for us, we really had to just keep in mind that they're both equally important to us. And that means that one doesn't suffer because of the other. So that looks like a lot of letting our yes be yes and our no be no and doing a few things well. I want to do all the things (laughs) all the time and I get really burnt out. And so I have to say no to good things that I really wanna do and that I really want my kids to be a part of and learning to like set boundaries and say no, recognize my own limits and our family's limits. Um, And one of those things looks like over time, we've kind of, through experience, trial and error, imperfection, we've had to decide what age group works for our family and the number of kids we could take at any given time so that our commitment to mission doesn't suffer and that we can still be a safe, healthy place for kids to, like, to grow and thrive. And that we can also, we've had unique experiences that we've been a part of each placement after they've gone home with their parents. And that's really important to us. And so that's a balancing act, learning to say yes when we can. And, but also to know, because when you get the call, you want to say yes. It's like, oh, can you take five children. Oh, I really want to, but that's impossible for the way that our life works. And so, um, you know, we have to make sure that we don't get in over our head. And so we really had to be purposeful about setting a boundary, saying this is what we can do, and then sticking to that boundary, which is really hard. That's why I asked them to call Dallas first. (laughs) (laughs) He does a better job at saying no. (laughs) Um, And then last, but I think the most important thing for us is that we have set up a community around us that knows us well and that we're submitted to the things that they say to us. And so when they say, you guys, you're getting in over your head, 
like you need to pull back or like we just went to them and said okay I think we're ready again can you guys give input into our life do you feel like we're ready are we having blind spots can we not see things that are going on before we step in because we want to do it well and so I think for us practically that's what it looks like yeah thank you and that's going to be different for for everybody right not everybody can balance uh, the things, you know, each of them have had to say no to really good things. You know, Shane and I've had, I don't know what Shane, like a hundred conversations about, he's like, I can do worship and I'm a foster dad and that's about what you're going to get. And I'm like, well, praise God, those are some good things, you know? And so at different times and different seasons and for different personalities, you're all going to have different things. But what I want you to get across from this today is each of you are called to justice work in the name of Jesus. Figure out what that is. Figure out what the Lord has given you a passion for, what he's calling you to. And don't just take it on as a project, but take it on as a life. Um, that's what he calls each of us to do. So thank you to each of you for kind of bearing your souls a little bit up here. I appreciate it. We're going to do another um, focused foster day when we have Gwen from DHS come and talk to us. I believe it's in December. I don't know. I'm looking for Sarah. Yeah, December. And so um, we'll probably hear some more, but thank you guys for this. And so uh, uh, serving the foster system is one way. Another way that's very easy for all of us today is uh, IJM. So International Justice Mission, I just want to take a second to tell you about them, and, and then we'll watch one last video and get into worship. Um, and I recognize that some of you may need to use the bathroom here. We're going long a bit, but that's okay. Um, they are the largest anti-slavery uh, anti group uh, in the world. And um, what they do is they convict uh, people who are in the midst of it. Uh, over uh, 1,200 convictions against slave owners, rapists, and other criminals have happened. Um, they've also freed 32,000 people. Um, and that is an amazing thing. One example is in 2015, uh, there was a study conducted by IJM that found that in the commercial sex markets in uh, the country of Cambodia, uh, it was estimated that 15 to 30% of the children uh, were in the sex slave industry, 15 to 30%. And with their work, that has now been almost eradicated to less than one-tenth of 1%. One That's amazing work. They also train um, uh, law enforcement to, to institute justice, and so 46,000 officers and officials have been trained. And so it's a pretty simple thing, guys, to, to cut back on the lattes and give an extra 24 bucks a month to um, IJM. And so I'm going to show you a quick little video here. Let's kill the lights one, one more time. Um, and uh, this is just talking about IJM free, being a freedom partner and partnering with them to support the work that they do. Uh, my wife and I partner. Uh, many of you partnered last year. Um, and we as a church are going to be sending uh, a check of a, for a thousand bucks to them just straight out um, to help them in what they do. And this month, uh, uh, if you um, jump in as a freedom partner this month, giving $24 a month, uh, there is a, a benefactor who will also double that. And so it's an awesome time to sign up as a freedom partner. But let's watch this short movie uh, and then um, we're going to get into to worship. Slavery doesn't exist anymore. Actually, it does. We just don't see it. We don't see the small boy forced to work in a brick factory, carrying more than twice his body weight. Or the mother with her two small children sitting at her feet, working without pay and without end. Or the young girl whose body is sold again and again and again. But there is hope. Because there is a group of people working day and night, relentlessly searching for each one of these lives. And when they free one life, they search for the next, and the next, and the next, making them the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. They are called International Justice Mission. Right now, there are more than 45 million slaves. And if this problem seems too big for them to handle alone, you're right. So there's a new plan, and it starts with you. Because the end of slavery starts with believers who can see. When we see the small boy, whose name is Kumar, we can make sure he is allowed to go to school. We will see the mother named Gowrie, who is now working for a fair wage that will give both her and her children a better life. And we will see the young girl. Her name is Mien, and her body will never, ever be sold again. 
When you and your church join with IJM on Freedom Sunday, each life set free will add up, becoming hundreds and then thousands and then millions until we finally can say, slavery doesn't exist anymore. Freedom Sunday. So uh, you can either do it on your phones or or we'd love to have you sign up in the back there. There's information in the back and uh, they can also help you sign up online back there. But we'd love to know how many of you actually do this. It's a very easy thing to do. And these folks are at it 24-7. They just arrested two Americans that were in the Philippines uh, attempting to traffic young girls. And um, it is amazing to watch their stories because over and over and over again, every day, they are doing work that we can't do. Um, Lawyers, law enforcement, and a number of other people, counselors, um, that go in and help the people after they've been freed from slavery. And so today I would ask of you, if you're not already supporting IJM, uh, man, find the, find the money in the budget and um, commit to helping them do what they do best, serving the Lord and serving his people and bringing freedom so that when the gospel comes to these places through IJM and through other means, they're ready to hear that they can trust a good and loving God. Let's pray. Worship team, why don't you come on up? Father, as we enter into a time of worship and response to your word, we ask that you would ignite our hearts, ignite in them a desire to step into the mission to which you have called all of us, the mission of bringing shalom to the world. We know that this cannot happen without your gospel truth, and we further know that the gospel often falls on deaf ears when it is taken to those who remain in hunger or slavery or poverty. Help us to walk in true religion as a church, individually and corporately, based on your gospel, empowered by your spirit, so that we might bring freedom to all those who are oppressed and join you in your mission to bring shalom to the world. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen.